Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with Deborah Corey, founder of Debco HR. Deborah is a top 101 employee engagement thought leader, a global keynote speaker, consultant, and best-selling author of a number of different books, including Effective HR Communication, Build It, The Rebel Playbook for Employee Engagement, and her latest book, Bringing Your Values Out to Play. If it's important in the HR space, Deborah's probably done it, and she focuses her time these days on paying it forward, sharing her knowledge and experience with others. We're lucky to have her with her today to do just that, and I'm excited to dig into the world of company values with her now. Deborah, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. No sweat. Thanks for coming. I think, look, there's so much ground we'll cover. And I think obviously lots to talk about in the employee engagement arena. And, and then we'll really dig deep on company values because there's lots to learn from you there. Before we do all that, though, it would just be great to get a bit of background on you as a person, right? Like, where are you? What have you been up to? Kind of what got you into the space to start with? Yeah, so um, I've been um, in HR my entire career. And it's been a very long career. So I think to sort of condense it a little bit, I've got just a couple different phases. So I started out in what I would call traditional. So back in the US, when I started out, very traditional type roles. I worked for a bank, I worked for manufacturing. And then I moved over to the UK and I explored the world of international HR, international reward, and really started to learn more things and understand the world in a better way and started to push the boundaries, which moved me into my rebel phase which is when I wrote my book, uh, Build It. And uh, I really started to uh, put on my rebel cape and really challenge the things that I had been doing my entire career. Still had a corporate role doing that. So it was great to be able to do that myself. And then I realized that um, I really liked writing books and I really liked getting out there and talking to people and helping people. And, and that's where that whole idea of pay it forward. And that's that's where I am right now. Charles Handy calls it different levels of your life. And this is my next level of my life, the next stage of my life. Oh, that's awesome. I think that there's a couple of quick questions from my side there, right? So, so firstly, you started out in the US. What brought you over to the UK? So I worked with uh, Gap at the time and I came over on a two-year expat assignment. Mm-hmm. So I've been here 20 years. So um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it over here. And it was a great experience. And for anyone listening, I really, uh, really, really encourage you to do things outside of your comfort zone. Because I remember when I got the um, offer, I was like, what in the world have I gotten myself into? I know nothing about international rewards. I know nothing. I had never even done benefits before. And all of a sudden, I was going to be doing European benefits. I was so nervous that I, I used to go to the supermarket at like three in the morning because I couldn't sleep. And my local supermarket was going to offer me a job as someone stocking the shelves. I was very nervous, but you know what? It completely changed my life. So I'm glad I did it. What are the biggest differences you kind of identified when you went through that transition, right? Like obviously the U- US and the UK and the kind of broader European markets operate reasonably differently. What was the kind of biggest learning curve for you as you went through that transition? Yeah, I think there were obvious cultural differences. So the difference between operating in the US and operating not just in the UK, because again, it was my first international role. So I had responsibility for supporting employees in in Europe and also in Asia and North America. So trying to understand how can I do things in a respectful way. Also, what I learned very quickly is that each country from an HR perspective was at a different stage. So again, how do I respect that? Because to some extent, I sort of felt like I had a crystal ball because I had done a lot of the things in the US before. So I sort of knew what could possibly happen next. 
But over the years, it's all changed. And I think different countries are, are definitely better at doing different things. Yeah, I love the challenge. Anytime I get involved with a new country, I really enjoy learning more about that country and the nuances and the cultures. Yeah, I think we've gone through that same challenge ourselves right here at Pinpoint. We've got customers all over the world and it's been a massive learning curve identifying all of those kind of parochial and regional specifics of how they operate and catering to those. And as you say, there's everyone sort of has their own strengths and weaknesses and it's it's easy to try and navigate those, but it's harder to do so in practice, right? Absolutely. I often do workshops with managers on employee engagement and get them to understand their impact as a manager. And I like to be human when I do things and share my mistakes. So I always start out by telling a story of uh, when I moved from the US to the UK, and it was the first time I had actually been a manager. And uh, a couple months into my job, I had a couple employee or this one brave employee come up to me and uh, tell me that there was a Deborah Corey support group where they would secretly every Friday get together and share stories of how I had made them cry during the week. Because I didn't understand the cultural nuances back then. And I was, I was managing the way I had been brought up in the US. And not that it's wrong, but 20 years ago, that was not the way to manage over here. So um, it was a great eye-opener for me that, again, I needed to understand these cultural nuances. And if I didn't know it, take the time go into a country and and ask questions and observe and build up that book before you start going out and doing things wrong. What a hero that person was for raising that with you though, right? You don't know until you're told oh sometimes. Oh my, she was so brave. Yeah, for yes, sure. Yes, very, very brave. Out of interest, so you know, you talk about how you had adopted a sort of US-centric management style into the UK market and that wasn't sort of necessarily super appropriate at the time. Do you think that the gap and the, the disparity between each of these regions has got bigger or smaller over the years? Like, are these places easier to operate across or are they actually more difficult than ever now? You know, it's a really broad question. I think at a really, really high level, I think the gap has narrowed because I think there's people like me who've, you know, moved around to different countries and we're influencing the different countries. But I still think there are cultural nuances. So for example, when I design things like incentive programs in some countries, the team element is more important because culturally it's more of a team element. They don't want the focus on the individual. I think there's a cultural, but also again, what I've learned over the years, it's also just the individual personality. So, you know, pretend that, you know, both of us are American. We could still be very, very different just because our personality. So it's it's really, again, taking the time to understand people, both culturally, personality, lifestyle, everything. There's just so many nuances. But you know, that's why I like being a leader and a manager is I, you know, I like being sort of a detective and understanding those types of things in my team. That makes perfect sense, right? And it's a bit of a minefield unless you actually take the time to work it all out, right? Yes. Second question then off the back of your your great introduction. You talk about your rebel phase, right? And you'd been in some very senior, you know, very influential and important roles at a bunch of very influential and important companies for a long period of time. What sort of flipped the switch and caused you to start questioning the way you'd been working? Well, you interviewed Glenn, Glenn Elliott, who was my co-author in Build It. And I think he really flipped the big switch. So I've always been the kind of person who questions and challenge. Ask anybody I used to work with. I was always the person in the room who would question and challenge. But I think in working with him, he made me understand more about why I was doing it and to do it in a more strategic and meaningful way. And he just he questioned and challenged things that I had been doing for years and years and years. And it really just made me realize that's what I need to do. And that's that's the biggest role I play with a lot of people right now. Not that I have the answers, but to help people understand 
What are they trying to do? How are they trying to achieve it? How can we do it differently? You know, you talked about in your introduction, you know, you're all about being different, but it's being different in a strategic and meaningful way. And to me, that was the the more effective way of turning on that switch for me. I always joke and say, I always had Glenn Elliott on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, <laughs> challenging and questioning true. me. Yeah. yeah Everybody is... needs a Glenn in your ear. Absolutely. Yeah. I wish I had one in <laughs> mine. That's amazing. I, I think... Moving into the kind of present, right? So so nowadays, you've gone through all of these amazing roles. You've written a few books. I'm sure there's more to come, and we'll touch on that later. Nowadays, you, you run Debco, which is your own sort of vehicle, right? Like, talk a little bit about what you do today for your clients and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, the reason I went out on my own, I think I said it at the beginning, is that I wanted to spend, I felt like I'd been doing things for such a long time in the corporate world, and although I really enjoyed it, if I really wanted to think about where I wanted to make my mark in the world, it was really about this concept of paying it forward. And, and that's really, if I think about the focus of what I do, it's about paying it forward. I've got two company values, which is open the door to possibilities and create magic. And that's what I try to do in either writing books or things like this. Hopefully, I'll, we'll have some conversations about opening the door to possibilities and creating magic through doing other talks and um, even consulting, which I never thought I was going to do consulting, but the pandemic all of a sudden, that's where I can pay it forward the most, it seems, right now. Sure. I think I love the notion, for those that haven't seen the work that Deborah does, of the chief pay it forward officer. Like, Can you just talk a little bit about what that means to you? Because I think that's awesome. Well, it was funny because when I was working with Glenn um, at Reward Gateway, I kept kidding and saying I should change my title to chief pay it forward officer because he would send me out to do talks or he would send me out to work with a Reward Gateway client and help them. I just sort of felt like that's what I was doing. And also I was being really honest. If you read any of my writings and even today, I've already admitted mistakes that I make. So to me, that's a lot about what pay it forward is. And I just think it's a really great idea for us to be able to do that with not just the younger generation, but each other. How can we pay it forward? How can we help? How can we support? And I know I'm not alone. A lot of people are doing that in a really brilliant way. It is my passion. And even just on my business plan, I, you know, I make sure that I, I'm very geeky because I started out in Comp and Benz. I've got my little spreadsheet about what is paying it forward by maybe helping charities or doing free talks at universities. I'm, I'm just getting ready to work with the university and, um, and get somebody that I can do um, an apprenticeship with. So I, I try to get the right balance in what that actually means. Sure. And I guess before we move into to the good stuff, so to speak, and start digging into engagement and values, I think, like, is there anything that you particularly enjoy doing? Because obviously you do a fairly wide range of things right now, right? Like anything that you naturally gravitate towards? I love the strategy. Again, because I think I really, in another life, I must have been a detective or something. I really like analyzing. And I mean, I do have a degree in psychology, so maybe maybe that's why. I'm sure that helps, Psychology yeah. and communication, so maybe, maybe that's why I like it. But I really like digging deep and trying to figure out as, um, you know, how can HR genuinely impact the business? How can it genuinely impact the people? And I, I like both sides of it. So I love working with leadership teams and boards and managers, but I have just as much fun doing focus groups with employees. I love focus groups with employees. They're just as much fun. Yeah, any good challenge I like. Again, last question on what you're doing right now. How's the writing going, right? Like I have read two of your three books and thoroughly enjoyed them both. And again, we'll dig deep into the values book today. Are you working on anything new that you can share with us right now? Yes, I'm working on my fourth book. So my goal is to write a book on all of the 10 elements of the engagement bridge. Luckily, my first book before the bridge was on one of them. So that's good. 
And then my most recent book is on one. So the next element that I'm working on is recognition. And so the way I start writing my books, if anyone's read any of my books, half of my books are stories or plays, which are what are companies doing? And I love that. I mean, I get off every interview with a company and I'm just like so jazzed. It's like, why didn't I think of that when I was designing a recognition program? So I've done about 20 interviews so far and I've mapped out the book because I'm a big believer in models, just so you can have some structure. So I've got my model done and I'm mapping out the book. I'm in good shape. August is usually my writing month because it gets a bit slow in the world. So my plan is to do that most of the writing in August. And anyone's listening and they've got a good story they want to share on recognition, contact me. I'm still looking for more stories. Would love to have it. I'm sure that's amazing, right? And I think like, obviously to a significantly lesser extent, but one of the the personal benefits of doing this, from my perspective, like interviewing people like you is that I pick up all these things and then roll them out in my own organizations and sometimes get given credit for things that aren't my ideas at all, right? And for you to be able to do that across all 10 of the engagement bridge kind of component parts, the end result at the end of it is going to be a, a pretty clued in HR professional. So excited to, well, excited we'll see. to see. Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing, right? It's, we'll see if it happens. I think the other thing I'm leaning towards also is I've done this with companies, but I think I want to do it more wider is to create manager's guides to some of these. So for example, build it. I love the book. I think it's great. I'd love to create more of a manager's guide to it. Same thing with values. I helped a company just last month create a manager's guide to values. And I'm thinking that it doesn't have to be a full book, but just something little. Again, with the concept of pay it forward, what are the things that you know I was a manager? What are the things that I would need to know to help me be better at recognition, values, everything else. So who knows where I'm going to go next? <laughs> to me, selfishly, that makes so much sense, right? Like obviously, given the nature of my role, I spend a lot of time reading all of these kind of things on the periphery and trying to make our own kind of organizational design better. But I think one of the biggest challenges we have, and not because our managers aren't exceptional, is just trying to kind of transition that learning and down into the rest of the business. And I'm not always the best educator. And like, for example, we've read lots of books on sort of internal meetings and structures and performance management. But it wasn't until I found the one minute manager and distributed that to the team in 60 pages that things started to meaningfully change really quickly. And so anything that we can do, I guess, to help distribute that knowledge throughout the business makes a lot of sense. So manager's guide seems awesome. Absolutely. And I was just going to say one one tip. I really think data is powerful. As a matter of fact, I just posted more data out there today. But the first piece of data I always share in a manager session and, and definitely share it with all of your managers is that there's a 70% variance in employee engagement because of managers. The reason I like to share that is not to blame managers but I believe that a lot of managers don't understand that that is their responsibility. They think that it's my responsibility in HR. The more managers like you, leaders like you who are passionate about it, the better. And by turning on, you know, sharing those numbers, I think two others, something like 56% of people would rather work for a stranger and then 50 something percent would rather work for a robot. Those are the type of numbers that I think all managers need to hear so that they can understand that they need to do something. No, for sure. And I think like we're really conscious of that here, right? Again, like we have some fantastic, fantastic people here, but those people aren't managers, right? And we try really hard to create individual contributor tracks that have like long-term progression financially and otherwise, so that people aren't forced into these kind of management roles that they didn't want in the first place, because we've found in the past that trying to make these people think that way and care that way about managing is harder. And so we just try and create individual contributor tracks that allow them to excel in that space. And then we try and identify people for whom this stuff is more of a personal passion and they care deeply about you know activating their team and getting them engaged on an ongoing basis 
like it's hard like it's really hard and i don't have the answers but that's why i like reading the stuff that you produce and the stuff everybody else in the space produces as well but you know what i think that's really powerful what you just said because i think you're right too many times we put people in as managers when they don't know what they're doing they're not the right person i admit it the first time i was made a manager it was because i was a strong individual contributor didn't know what the heck i was doing so i think you're right you either Make sure that they do genuinely want to do it, but also we, we give them the skills and the support and also the time. I think a lot of times people, you're going to be a manager, but you're still going to do your day job. And how is that setting someone else up for success? But anyway, we could talk about management. That'll probably be my next book. So well, I'll come back when I write that book after recognition. Yeah. Okay. No, we'll, we'll speak again. <laughs> we'll speak again. But no, look, that's awesome. And, and a great way to wrap that section up. I think I'd love to start digging deeper into these kind of two main tracks today, right? So we'll spend sort of 10 minutes or so just digging into some high level engagement stuff. And then I really want to sink most of our time into values because there's just so much to pick up there. So I'll throw a hardball question out right at the beginning, right? Like what's changed? What have we learned about employee engagement through the kind of COVID pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting because um, in the book that Glenn and I wrote, we talked about what an engaged employee was and is. And I still think that that's true. And I want to share it. I don't know if Glenn, I'm sure Glenn shared it, but I think it's still true. But I've actually added to my definition because of COVID. So I think an engaged employee definitely needs to understand what's going on in the business. And even more so now than ever with so many people working remotely. So what are companies doing to make sure that people are understand are excited about what the business is doing, also how their role fits in. And then also with the world, I hate the word pivot, but I'm going to use it with the world pivoting so much. What are we doing to get all that collective insight, all that innovation from our employees? But then the part I added to the definition to answer your question is that companies really through engagement have had to show their employees that they care and support them. And the reason I added that to definition, I'm going to point because I'm working from home and my neighbor lives right there. And I remember after the first lockdown, my neighbor came to me and always was very engaged about their job, loved their job, everything about it. And all of a sudden was disengaged. I'm like, what happened? What changed it? And what he said to me was that when first lockdown was over, his boss said, I need you to come back to London five days a week. And when he told his boss, you know, I've, I've had some, some health issues, I've done a good job working from home. I really don't feel comfortable coming into London five days a week. And his boss just said to him, well, everyone else is, you need to. And to me, that was when that light bulb went off. You know what? If we don't genuinely show people we support and support and care for them and understand back to what we said before, their individual needs, there is never going to be engagement. And I think a manager's job is harder than it ever was before because what made us unique before, there's like, so much more that makes us unique right now. Even like, how do we feel about travel? How do we feel about being around people? All the COVID related things just make it that much more challenging for for businesses and managers. So that's super interesting. And, and I think, you know, again, our own small scale, we've learned a lot through this process as well. And I think we've been really surprised as a business by just how different everybody's perspective of the same set of circumstances are. And there's no right or wrong perspective. Everyone's entitled to think of things their own way. And obviously, as a small organization, it's relatively easy for us to be nimble and to adapt and to offer people things that suit their personal lifestyle requirements. And it's become like a competitive advantage for us. But I think circling back to the story you just gave and a comment you made sort of five minutes ago about the impact of an individual manager on the broader ecosystem, right? Like, what can we be doing to fix this problem proactively? Is it manager training? Are there tools? How do you get people to kind of evolve their thinking and understand this? Because this individual here, that manager, mm -hmm. has clearly not done that, right? Yeah. 
I think it starts with the awareness, which is what I said before. So the awareness of what your role is and also awareness of new expectations. I genuinely believe that we need to take a step back and think about the skill sets of managers. I did a talk recently. So the book is called Build It, and the talk was Building On It. (laughs) And for each of the different elements, I talked about how we need to build on it based off of what's been going on in the world. And, And one of the chapters is about learning and development. And for that one, I think what we need to build on is Again, take a step back. What did a manager look like before? What skill sets do they need to do now? Because I think it's really wrong for us to just assume that our managers are going to know how to manage someone remotely, how to have these challenging conversations with people to understand what their motivations are. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm going to share a really human story, and I'm only doing this just to make a really bold point. Unfortunately, my mom passed in the middle of COVID. and I never got to go back to the US and see her. So for me, the idea of going back to the office involves guilt. I couldn't see my mom, I couldn't travel to see my mom, but I can travel to the office to go to work. So it's a very personal feeling, which my manager would never understand if my manager didn't, I'm not, I work for myself, but you know what I mean? If my manager didn't have a conversation, and I'm not a very open person, like this is probably the first time I've admitted that my mom passed. But having a manager that you've got this relationship with so that you can understand how the person is feeling and and create that conversation, I don't think is a skill set that many managers have. I know I wouldn't. I've worked a lot on developing that side of me, especially more now than, than ever before. But yeah, to answer your question, I think we really need to set our managers up for success. Yeah, I mean, well, firstly, thank you for sharing that. And, yeah, sorry, and sorry for just throwing that. that out no, there. No, 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 no. Look, I, I sincerely appreciate that. But the story really illustrates the severity of the situation, right? There's some trust elements there. There's some communication skills needed there. But I, I think you're completely right. And these conversations haven't historically had to happen, I guess, is the way we should think about it, right? But now they really do. And people need to understand how personalized the experience has become. And I think to the point, again, going back to your previous story, a one-size-fits-all approach, everybody else is coming to the office, so you need to do that as well. It's just going to result in that person finding somewhere that they can work where they can have a more personalized and tailored kind of career experience, right? And so just reframing that whole conversation is difficult and getting managers to think that way is is easier said than done. Again, for us as a smaller business, fairly forward-thinking, fairly used to working with a distributed team, all comes quite easily. But we speak to lots of organizations where those constraints absolutely don't exist. And they're very constrained. You know, there was a book that was written called The Somewheres and The Anywheres. And it talks about how individual groups of people tend to fit into one of two categories, right? They're either a somewhere, i.e. they're very portable set of talent. They can relocate and they can work anywhere. They can work remotely. Their, their well-being, their sense of like self isn't tied to a physical location. And then there's the anywheres where, well, sorry, this is in reverse. The anywheres basically can work anywhere. The somewheres are very tied to physical locations. Maybe they work in agriculture or in retail or something where the location and their identity is very tied to a specific thing. And obviously change comes far more naturally for the somewheres than it does for the anywheres. And what you've seen a lot in a lot of organizations is a lot of management who are in one camp and a lot of the team underneath them in a very different camp. And that friction, I think, is not an easy challenge to solve. And so it'd be really interesting to see who kind of comes out on top as things evolve, because the changes that we've seen through the pandemic aren't going anywhere, right? They're accelerating, if anything. 
Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, there's lots of different personality tests. My um, last couple of companies, we used DISC with yep. had four colors. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that I learned the most about it was we all are different personalities and you can't force people to change. So I did a parenting version of it. And I remember my um, my son was the, what I learned about him was he needs to think things through about six more times than I do. And the technique they taught us as parents was that just do your shopping list while he's, you know, making up his mind because he's <laughs> never going to change. And it was just really, again, one of those aha moments for me in that, you know, if I've got someone who's a blue green or whatever, I, it's my job to understand how to work with them. It's not their job to change to, to be like me. And again, it goes back to that awareness and education. Again, completely resonates. Like, to be clear, I'm definitely the red yellow. But like, I think, yeah, so like that, yeah, no, no <laughs> doubt, right? And that's why this is fun. But the thing is, yeah, like I, I get that. But I think you might be sort of prompted to have that internal dialogue with your family because circumstances and whatnot. I don't think that's happening enough in the workplace, right? And I don't think people are understanding that their team and the wider group of people that they work with have to learn to work together and not try and pigeonhole everybody into a specific way of doing things. Moving on, I want to talk a bit about, you know, you talk about you're writing a book on recognition in the short term. I think how has the word of recognition changed through the pandemic? I don't want to make everything about the pandemic, but I feel like that's changed a lot. I feel like recognition to many organizations used to be a pat on the back and a shout out when you had your company beers and drinks on a Friday. How has that adapted now? And, and what are people doing well from a recognition standpoint? So I think a lot of companies have done a lot of informal things really, really well. I actually did a, a talk on that, gosh, probably after the second lockdown. And what I've loved about what's happening is that, you know, think about all the claps. We've all been doing the claps. We've all been doing a lot of high fives. And I think people have gotten really better at recognizing those small moments. In the past, if I think about recognition, we've been focusing a lot on the big moments. So employee of the year or five-year anniversary and all those really big momentous things. I think I read a study that said that um, 78% or 87% of money spent on recognition is on things like long service and, and annual awards. So I think during the pandemic, we had no choice but to focus on those small things. And I loved, you know, During the first lockdown, I can remember how amazing it was to go out on our driveway and do the claps. You know, it was a way to connect to people. And I think that's how we've started to use recognition differently throughout the pandemic is using it as more of a connection, also as a way to provide feedback because we weren't seeing each other all the time. How do you get feedback from people when you're not seeing them? So again, it was that more what I call anytime recognition. And that's really what I want to focus on the book. I still want to do things, the big ones, because I think the big things are, you know, I'm a big fan of celebrating everything. But I think we, if a company doesn't do day in, day out, small recognition, doesn't have to involve money, then that's really where they need to start. And that's, that's what I really want to encourage companies to do. For sure. I think, yeah, like we're not exactly seeing people complain of like celebration fatigue, right? Like you you can't celebrate the small things enough from my perspective. And we've tried to roll out lots of little things just to prompt that and promote that and make sure people are thinking about that. And they might send an individualized message, but maybe that could be shared more publicly and like lots of little sort of stepping stone incremental improvements rather than these big here's an annual event where we'll celebrate stuff. I think that makes perfect sense. But it's just interesting to watch how different organizations are adapting the way they think about these specific things through the pandemic. And again, really, to me, the pandemic in this context is just about forcing people's hands to adapt, adopt more of a like distributed remote workforce, right? And that was happening to some extent anyway. 
Yeah. And from an HR perspective, I've spoken to many people, not just with the recognition book, but when I interview people for blogs and speaking and such. And a lot of people have said to me that actually the pandemic has helped them do things that they've wanted to do for a while. They wanted to do these things, but they couldn't get the support from their leadership team. Things like recognition, also well-being. I mean, there's not one organization that has not started to focus on well-being. And in the past, again, it was an uphill battle getting support when it came to that. So it's like the door has opened. And what's really important is we need to take advantage of the door before it shuts or just to keep it open all the time so that we can do all the wonderful things that we want and need to do. Yeah, I couldn't echo that more. I think when we, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic last year, things really were very quiet in that sort of first quarter and second quarter. But come Q3 2020, the floodgates just opened and we were speaking to people like every hour basically saying, look, we've always wanted to invest in new systems or new ways of working or new reward or new benefits or whatever. It doesn't really matter. We never had the time because we were so busy. We never had the budget because it wasn't considered important. We All of the things you're saying, we see at the coalface trying to build and sell technology solutions in the HR sector. So let's just hope that continues. And I think fortunately it has. I think people have realized now, not so much that there's this immediate sense of urgency, but this is the long tail now, right? Like this is what you have to do to be competitive. Yeah. And you I get think a taste that, of it. You get a taste yeah. of it. It was like, I remember I got upgraded once to first class and every time, well, of course I don't sit in first class every time now, but I'm always <laughs> looking at those people in first class going, I know what that's like. I yep. want a little bit of yep. that. Yep. So it's the same thing. We've tried these different things like technology. I've heard so many companies say, I do not know how I would have gotten through the last year without technology. There's no way I'm not going to renew for another year because I've realized you know, how much more I can do through technology. And I, I've seen that myself. Technology is you know, really made a huge impact in me being able to deliver what I need to deliver as an HR person. Yeah, I just I think what's considered table stakes has just evolved and leveled up in your kind of terminology, right? And I think people, I think the worry was that it would be temporary, like you say, and I think fortunately that hasn't been the case. But I think the other thing as well is that people are realizing now, and we're seeing this from leadership teams, that this isn't a competitive advantage anymore. This is the de minimis requirement. And if they don't do this, it's not that they won't be able to attract new talent, it's that they won't be able to keep their current talent. And that's Absolutely. that's what's really, I think, forced these reallocations of budget and forced people to move and forced people to adapt new ways of working alongside technology, which is good for everybody, right? It's good for businesses in the sector, but it's good for the employees. It's good for the teams. Everybody kind of wins. Absolutely. And it's it's funny because, you know, I've been through a couple of different cycles since I've been doing it for a while. And that seems to happen every time, you know, a couple companies do it and it's like the exciting thing to do and everybody keeps joining and joining and you're right. And then it becomes like, Yes, you have to do it. I mean, I've been watching gymnastics on the Olympics and it's like, you know, I remember the first time someone did a double flip. Now, you know, if you don't do a double flip three times in your routine, you're never going to medal. And that's, the, you know, same, same idea in the business. You're never going to be able to, you know, attract and retain people, you know, flexible working, how many job descriptions. I heard that's one of the most common things listed on um, a job advert is flexible working. And if there's, if it's not listed, people aren't going to apply for it. That's it. It's table stakes, right? Like the bar just gets raised. And I, I like that you brought gymnastics into it. I remember reading in the book that I think you got knocked off a bike and managed <laughs> to do like a front flip and land perfectly and a perfect 10 landing on your feet uh, when you were younger, right? So had to drop that in there. Yeah. You know, you bring the strangest stories into books, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a storyteller. And I think that if you can bring us, if you can have a story and it makes the point so much better than me just telling people. It's the story. The point of that one is to use your values so much that it becomes, you don't even 
think about your values. So the point is, as I was flying through the air, I didn't think about it. I just did a front flip. And so the story illustrates it better than just the words. For sure. No, it does. I'm very guilty of trying to bring metaphors into basically every sentence I ever utter. I'm (laughs) conscious that we've spent a great deal of time talking about a whole bunch of super interesting things, but I really want to focus now on on the value side because there's, again, I just want to make sure that we really touch on these kind of five core themes, right? So, So talk to me about values. What do people get wrong, right? Like what do company values actually mean and why are they useful? So many times I've worked at companies or I've met companies where they have values because they have to. And it's the same for anything when it comes to engagement. You've got a recognition program because you have to, a benefit. What I find really frustrating is that they have the wrong values to begin with. So not ones that are unique and meaningful. And to illustrate it, I wrote an article for Forbes a couple of years ago. And being the geek that I am, I did a little spreadsheet where I took the top 100 Forbes companies and I put the company names down one side and the values across the top. And then I hid the column. I couldn't even tell which company was was which. So if employees are looking at values, and they are, they're looking at what your values are, first of all, the uh, potential candidates won't even really know what you're all about because you'll be the same as someone else. So they might not even be interested, or you'll attract the wrong kind of people because you don't want to force people to join your company if they don't believe in your values. So you need to have values that are genuinely unique and meaningful. And then the main reason I wrote the book, to be honest with you, was I read some statistics that said that only one third of employees know what their values are, and a third of them actually use them. So if you go back to the analogy of me flying through the air, so their employees are flying through the air trying to make decisions, and they have no values, no focus. You know, They're either going to land in the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong way. It's just not going to work. So I think it's really important to have the right ones. And then the title of the book is Bring Your Values Out to Play, and then bring them out to play over and over again so that we can all change those statistics. I want every employee in companies to know what their values are so that they're at the right companies and they're making the right decisions for your business. Sure. And like that's powerful, right? And I think there's there's lots to, to unpack there. And you talked about playing with your values. And to me, that was the most kind of engaging part of this whole picture because there's so many things there that I think people aren't doing. And we'll dig into those things in a second. I think if we move on, you talk a lot about discovering your values. And I think you say discover, don't design, right? And again, Can you kind of give us some thought on what that means in practice as well? Yeah, it was interesting because when I first started writing the book, I was using the word design because I design programs all the time. And the more I was doing research and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that you don't really design them because they're already a part of who you are. They're a part of your DNA. And that's why discovering, I think, is a better word because it's all about trying to understand what are the things that you already say? What are already the things that you do? What are the things that you believe they're intrinsic to you. And it's really just bringing them to the surface and creating them in your own way. I have a, a model, you know, I love models, a three-step model for discovering, which is first you put them on the wall. So just picture a room full of post-its of all the things that you see, believe, and such. And then you invite the ones to the table that are really, really important. The ones that are really going to make you unique and move the needle. And then the last part is to make them your own and bring them to your heart and make them, you know, something that's different for you than another company. And I I love companies that are really creative with values. They're the ones that I use for examples over and over again. 
a question on that, right? So you talk about this idea of kind of getting it all out and getting these post-it notes and chucking ideas on the walls and sort of describe. And then you talk about picking the ones out of those that set you apart and that give you kind of something to play with and work with, right? Which makes loads of sense. But I guess, should your values be a description of the way that you are today or should they be aspirational things that you strive for? Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's a balance. So I'm a big believer that you should not have what I call the why bother. I can't remember. There's another word that other people use, but I call them the why bother values. Ones that just make you the same. And it's, it's who you are already. Like, not to be rude if you have this value, but be kind. You know, your employees only have so much memory. Do I want to waste a value on be kind? And that's what I always do. I always think my employees are going to remember anywhere from three to five. And is it one that's worth it? But then to your point, um, I always, though, encourage people to have ones that are aspirational, that will help you to get to the future. Um, I have an example of a company that I interviewed where they had a value when they were a small company was all about owning it and, you know, really just taking the ball and running with it themselves. But as as they were growing, they realized that was actually slowing them up. So what they did is they changed the value to be more about collaboration and partnership. Now, they weren't there at the moment. But that was aspirational. That's where they needed to be or the business will never grow. And in hindsight, they said, we probably should have had that to begin with. But sometimes you don't know. And that's why sometimes you might need to change your values or behaviors. I do believe it's it's all a balance. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with changing values from your perspective, right? Like they should evolve with the organization over time if they need to. Yeah. I mean, if you're really going to embed your values, which is what bringing your values out to play is all about, which is embedding them all the way, which takes a long time. I'm, I don't think you should change your values unless you really, really, really need to. More often than not, you change the behaviors that sit below them. And I would encourage every company to look at your values and behaviors now, because with the world changing as much as it has, I would not be surprised at at least one behavior, if not more, have not changed. As a matter of fact, for me, I've got, I told you my two values and I'm going back and forth. Do I add a third one or do I put it under? Because for me, by paying it forward, I've had to push myself to do things that I might not be comfortable with. And I really need to be more brave and more courageous. And I'm going back and forth. Do I create a value or do I just make that a part of my open the door to possibilities? Because that's a new thing that I need to expect from myself if I'm going to fulfill my mission. And again, I think every company is probably in the same situation as me. Just one other thing on the whole discovery piece, right? Like how much of the value system should be top down versus kind of collaborative? And and I guess what I mean by that in practice is I'm kind of conscious. So I'm the CEO of my own little small business. I'm kind of conscious that basically a lot of the values of our business are just going to be reflections of my behaviors, good and bad. And like, I'm obviously trying to fix the bad stuff, but should it be a round the table discussion where everyone has an equal voice and everyone can throw ideas in the table? Or should it be, this is how we work and this is the view of the leadership team and therefore this is the sort of attitude we have as an organization? How does that work? Yeah, and you can tell I'm in, into balance, maybe because I spent a lot of time on the balance beam growing up. Absolutely positively believe that you need to get the input of your employees because I'm so often surprised at some of their insight. There's something called the iceberg of ignorance, which talks about how 100%, now they talk about problems, but I also think it's insight. They say 100% of the problems are known at the more junior level and only like 5% at the most senior. But again, I think the insight is like that. And if you don't bring the collective insight, then you're missing this huge opportunity. However, I also, at the same time, have conversations with the leadership team to understand 
Are there things that actually we don't want to encourage? So I know everybody talks about we need to do this, but is that actually something to your point about looking to the future that we don't want to put in our values and behaviors because it's something we want to remove? So I do think it's a check and balance, but definitely get everybody involved. Sure. And is there a right time to do this? So like, should values be the first conversation you have the day the business is founded? Should they be something that happens when there's 50 of you? What does that look like? You know, it's interesting because again, I I work for myself and the reason I have values, because going back to what, well, I don't think I told you what my definition of what values are for, but a values is going to help you deliver on your mission and also help you make your decisions. So I guess my challenge would be is if you don't articulate, and it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't have to be, you know, some clever words or anything like that. But if you don't at least document it and, you know, I've got it in post-it so that I don't forget it then you're going to lose your track. You're going to lose your focus. So personally, I believe whether you're one employee or 200,000 employees, you need values to some extent. And again, I only have two and I don't have behaviors below them because it's just me. And for me, that's enough, just knowing that everything I'm doing. But I have to tell you during the pandemic, if I hadn't had those values, I would have felt lost because probably similar to you, my whole year was planned. I had just written a book. I was going to tour you know, the world. And all of a sudden that didn't happen. And I'm thinking, where do I go next? And I brought my values out. I'm like, my goal is to open the door to possibilities, create magic. How can I do that in a different way? So again, the values are a business tool. They're not some pink, fluffy people tool. They are a business tool. It makes perfect sense. I don't want to get too much into the minutia, but I had to ask a couple of really specific questions, right? So like when I was reading through the case studies in the book, and there's loads of them, right, of all different shapes and sizes of organizations across different sectors, there wasn't really much consistency in terms of the number of values that each organization had. Some had one, some had five, some had more, you know, same with you and two. Is there a right answer here? Like how should organizations determine how many values they actually need? Do you know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people I read, they give you this magic number. And I did do a survey. I did a survey more about what people have. And the average is somewhere around four or five. It goes back to what can your employees remember? So I genuinely think you shouldn't have too many because your employees won't be able to remember them. However, one of the companies I interviewed, Zappos, they have 10 values. Now they spent a year on those values, fine-tuning them, workshopping them, doing everything and anything to reduce that number. And at the end, they said every single one needs to be on the table. And I respect them for that. And they're right. My husband just started a job and he's been doing, um, he's probably upstairs doing the induction right now. And they just had the CEO yesterday during the induction come on and go through their 10 values. And same thing, because when I read the values, I said to him, I said, can't believe your company has 10 values. And he said, but hearing the CEO talk through what they all mean, I don't think I could get rid of any. So I think you should have a a goal of having a small number. But if your values are going to help you deliver on your mission and your purpose, don't get rid of them if you need them, I guess is the bottom line. Just wanted to pick up on the the shout out to Zappos there. So Zappos, like I love Zappos, like required reading for every member of the team here at Pinpoint is Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, one of the best books I've ever read, in my opinion. 
and I just wanted to shout out to them for a few reasons. So A, like from an organizational design perspective, they are epic. But also, and I think one of the themes of things you've said throughout this conversation, which I love and, and I also try and emulate as best I can, is like you're not afraid to talk about failure and you're not afraid to have said, hey, I tried this, it didn't work, I've made some mistakes, learn from my experience, I'm paying it forward, right? And I think for those of you that have knew anything about me, most of my career is an abject failure. This happens to be working quite well. And so like, I'm very proud of my mistakes, right? That they are who I am. The thing that I love about Zappos is that they run these large scale experiments on different organizational design things, or like they experimented with halacracy, like, you know, flat management organizational hierarchy, and it didn't work. But they ran that experiment and they invested the time in educating the rest of the world about what happened when they did those things. And we can all learn from that. And like a lot of our customer success here is inspired by the way Zappos approached that at their organization. And I think I just wanted to shout them out as an organization who who have sort of trod the unbeaten path, so to speak, because if Zappos have 10 and it works for them, all of a sudden 10 could work for me. Do you know what I mean? I'm not aspiring to have that now, but if you use them as an example, it really solidifies the validity of your point, I think. But again, they did it in a very inclusive way. You're going to be really jealous when I tell you this, but I've actually been to Zappos headquarters. I was flying to San Francisco. I had a three-hour layover in Las Vegas, and they were kind enough to let me go and visit them in an amazing, amazing place, even like how they treat their pets. I love this. So they've got certain sections, because not everybody likes dogs, certain sections where dogs can be, but other sections where they can't. And the dogs have tags because they all have to take a test. So everything they do, they do in their own unique way. They've been in two of my books already. I'm, I want to go to them for recognition, but I feel like I just have to keep, le- you know, I, I should leave them alone for a little bit, but I probably won't. I already know what they do. They have Zappos Zollers. Oh, yeah? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's what they do for recognition. They've got a Zappos Zollers shop. I have a picture of it when I visited them. Oh, that's awesome. See, again, like there's just so much to learn from these organizations. You know, we always talk about the Netflixes and people like that that have done some things differently here. But I think Zappos don't maybe get the recognition that they deserve. So great that we've talked about them today. Again, kind of moving on with the questions, right? So we've talked about discovering values. There's one other thing, actually, I wanted to say. So we're going through this journey ourselves, right? And we've just bought your toolkit and we've got a company retreat that hopefully will go ahead in September, COVID allowing, and we're going to bring a whole bunch of people that we've hired that we've never met before together. And we're really excited to kind of define our values because we're a bit of a laggard here. And I think there's some implied truths about how you should operate if you're a team member here, but it's never really been codified and we're excited to get that done. One of the challenges I went, and again, I've recently read the values book because it's relevant to me. I found it really difficult to read all these case studies of these amazing inspirational organizations and not just steal their values. How often does that happen? And is that a bad thing? You know, you talked about your Forbes analysis and how you couldn't even tell organization to organization. And, and you know, the example I always hear is um, Enron had integrity as a core value, right? Like, how do you how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? And how do you stop yourself just copying the values of organizations you admire? Well, it's interesting because in my values toolkit, I intentionally created a deck of cards with about a hundred different values because I don't think there's anything wrong with starting with what people have because you might, in your conversations that you're going to be doing with your teams, you might realize, actually, I, I think that's really, really relevant, but that's why you've got that third step because, and, and I didn't have a lot of the quirky ones on the cards because I didn't want to get too quirky, but you know, things like innovate. So you might decide, you know what, I want something about innovate or customer service. You know, you probably have something about customer service, but you put it in your own words. And I'll give you an example. I just pulled up a slide deck. So one company, they're in the book, 
who uh, is a mattress company, they've got a value that says we're experts in support because they're a mattress company. So it talks about customer service. There's another company that I interviewed in in the book from Australia that's a technology company, and they've got a, a value which is don't the customer because that's you know just their way of saying it. So it's okay to take the concept. You know, there's only so many words in the English language. I should know, but I don't know. But it's then how do you put it in, a, in language that is meaningful for you? And that's where the magic is. And, and that's why you need more people also, because cl- my cleverest ideas are not my ideas. They're someone else's ideas. I mean, bringing your values out to play, I interviewed someone and those were the words that she used. I'm sure, I'm, I can't wait to hear what your team comes up with for your values. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, and nor can I, to be honest. And you know, I asked the question hypothetically about whether it should be top down or bottom up when we're going through this process, it, it literally was hypothetical. I think we are very keen on hearing what our own team have to say because everybody has a different perspective on it, right? But we also want to try and make values feel bespoke and relevant to us. I'd rather not use these generic catch-all words. Like one thing for us, for example, is like we put ourselves first, which sounds really arrogant. But what I mean by that is that you know, we're a bootstrap business, we're profitable, we grow on our terms and we care about our people and our team above all else, including our customers. Um, to the point where we won't take a customer if they're rude or we don't like them or we don't believe in the way that they think about things. Like we will put our team above money. Um, And that isn't true of every organization. And we want to codify that approach so that people feel like they can say no because it's bad for them, right? And like I want a bunch of those where it's like clearly us and you could read that and you wouldn't have a worry about identifying that it's pinpoint in the hidden column on your spreadsheet. But it's hard and that's why I'm enjoying this so much. But what's just as important is to create the behaviors under it, because that's the biggest challenge. And, and I spend more time on the behaviors than the values. So because everything that you've just explained sit below it, because everyone's going to interpret differently. But then just as important is you need to think about, well, how am I going to run my business? So are you going to put your money where your mouth is? My last company was like that. We, we believed 100% in the customer. But then if the customer did something that was, you know, would cause a problem to an employee, we knew that the CEO had our back that he would do something about it for us. So how are you going to make sure that your business aligns with it to support those? And that's the thing. So we already do that. And I am hot on saying no to stuff because of exactly this reason, right? That's why, to me, it's the obvious value we have because it's something that we do that is different, that is demonstrable. And my hope is that we'll sit around the table and everybody will understand and there'll be multiple people suggesting that because it's a behavior we already live. But the challenge for me is how do we document that in a way that it's a behavior that new people coming into the business feel comfortable living as well? Yeah, and I think it's through storytelling also and sharing stories with new people. These are examples when we did it, and that's where the light bulb's going to go off. And they'll know then that that is actually something that you genuinely believe in. And that's why a lot of like on my, I've been helping a lot of companies with values, and I'm a big believer in videos to sort of storytell it. And I actually created some silly little video for myself and put it on my website for that reason, just to show people that sometimes, you know, in a company, I would get my employees to come in and storytell, but it was, it was just me. So I did it myself. But, you know, constantly sharing stories of how you've lived the values to me makes it resonate. I was just going to say, when I was at Merlin Entertainments, we used to have an annual uh, values video competition. It was really, really a heated competition. And each of the different attractions and business areas would compete as to who could tell the best story about what the value meant. And I love that time of year because everybody was talking about values more than any other time. And I'm sure that everybody knew what all of our values were. 
that's a great story to bring us to the next stage, right? Which is this idea of playing with your values. And I think we've talked a, bot, a lot about how we can kind of codify them and discover them and how that process should look. I think let's talk about how we can actually live them. And I guess, how should organizations be bringing these things to life, right? What are the kind of low-hanging fruit opportunities here? Yeah, I mean, I think that the place to start is really just to map out your employee experience and your business experience. So what are all the different touch points? I know we call it employee experience, but what are what are the different times that we interact with our employees? Obvious first example, what does a candidate see when they're actually going to apply for a job? So it was amazing when I looked at these top 100 companies, how many of them didn't even have their values on their website. I had to really dig deep to get them. So what do you do to, first of all, make sure that a candidate has them and then working your way through, I'm not going to go through all of them, but what do you do to make sure that you interview, base your decisions on it? I interviewed one company who said that they, they interviewed based off of their values, but if they had red flags and they were really good, they hired them anyway. And then they took a step back and analyzed it. And every single person with a red flag, it didn't work out. And what they realized was that, you know, it's not like we want cookie cutter people, but we need people who believe in the values because it's not right for the business and it's also not right for them. I'm sure we've all worked for companies before where our values might not have aligned with the company. And it was probably because we joined not knowing what the values were. Makes perfect sense. And essentially what you're saying is just that we need to bring values into every touch point, right? So from recruitment to onboarding to performance management to recognition, like they need to form a part of everything we do and not just be this siloed entity, right? Absolutely. And use them when we communicate. You know, anytime I go out to my people and I communicate a different initiative, I relate it back to a value. It's another way to remind them of of what it is. So yeah, every opportunity that you can have. And then even just the business side, how are you going to, you know, develop people? How are you going to lead meetings? How are you going to make business decisions? Everything. It can't just be a people side. It has to be from both sides. And Great example I have from Build It, which the story was about values. There was a uh, travel company, and it it seems really odd now because everybody does it now. But before the pandemic, if you would cancel your holiday, they would keep your security deposit. That was just the way the world was. And they had a situation where they had an employee that said, we've got a, a value that talks about how important our employees are. Why do we keep their security deposit? That means that we don't really think that they're important. And the leadership team said, you know what, you're right. And they changed the policy. And to me, that's a great business example of living the value. Even what you said, you know, you said about making a decision about not working with the customer. That's a business decision, not a people decision. Yeah, but it's one we all have to stand by, right? And that's how we can proudly have it as a value. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Talk to me about value memory moments. I love this analogy in the book, right? What does that mean in practice? It's really, it goes back to that whole idea about me on the bike. It's all those little memories that just sort of add up. And a lot of them aren't in your face. I mean, simple little things. I interviewed a company, I think it was in Brighton, and they had little values pillows. Not anything big, but, you know, I sat on the couch. I knew what their values were. I recognized someone. That's a value memory mode. Every time you use it, it creates a memory that is going to build that lasting, lasting effect. Because as humans, you know, I said before, we can only remember so much. There's something called the memory curve. Have you ever heard of that before? I haven't, to be honest. I'll forget the statistics, but it's something like in an hour, you're going to forget 50% of what I said. By the end of the day, you're going to forget 75% of what I said. And by the end of the week, you're going to forget 90% of what I said. So if we don't create these values, memory moments over and over again, 
they're never going to be able to remember what they are and also what they mean. Thank God we're recording this then, right? <laughs> so no, that's great. I think one of the other things that you, you referenced a bit in the book in terms of keeping those values alive within organizations and ways organizations are doing this is through these like culture books or values decks and things like that. And I remember growing up, I used to love computer games. I still do, but I don't have any time because I'm a miserable business dad now. <laughs> but Valve, this company Valve, I remember someone leaked probably intentionally their employee kind of culture deck and the thing you got given when you joined. And it was this beautiful book that was illustrated with their game characters that talked about how they worked in cabals and how they got together in small groups and everyone could move their desk around and they forced people to do that every and like the specifics don't really matter but it just landed with me really hard when I was younger that like this company that creates these awesome games did that this way like that's how they do this and they'd really 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 documented that process uh, and I just loved that. I fell in love with that. And, and one of the things that got me interested in, like, how do good companies look under the hood, right? Have you got any other examples that people can go look at? Because we'll put links to these in the show notes and stuff like that of other companies who are doing kind of culture books or values decks really well. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have anything digital, but um, it might be on their website. So my last company was Reward Gateway and um, have a love a, a lovely culture book. I should have. It's literally right it is there on the website. Me. I've should, read it. I, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Okay, cool. And I used to bring it with me anytime I would do talks and so many people would go away and, and do it their own way. And I think you're right. I think it's such a powerful thing. What I also like what some companies do, I, I, going back to this mattress company, I helped them launch their values and they created this uh, lovely book with the marketing team. Same idea as what we did at Reward Gateway. And what we did at the end of it is we had everybody write because one of the things that doesn't happen all the times with values is they understand what it means to the business but they don't understand what it means to me personally, right? So, you know, your value that you talked about, it's all well and good for the business to say, we're not going to work with people who, it, you know, it's not right for the business. But what does that mean for me as an individual? Does that mean that if, you know, I get into this difficult situation that I don't work with them? And it's, it's that part, that's what's nice about a culture book that sort of builds on that and you use it to actually have those conversations. But I think that's the only, those are the only two that I know recently. I've heard of Valve before. Netflix has a culture deck, but that's like 60 pages long. That's not something short and sweet. And I do think making something that's a bit unique to you, something that brings the words to life. I had a client who um, were finishing their values and they wanted to make it part of their handbook and their policies and procedures. And I said, I wouldn't do that because this is the fun bit. You want to have it as that fun little document that you pull out all the time keep it separate from all the policies and procedures. No, that's it. I mean, yeah, Zappos, Netflix, Valve, there's, there are loads of examples, Reward Gateway, a prime one, and we'll put links to a few in, in, in the notes. As I said, I just, I think people should see what these things look like because they are incredibly powerful. And I'm not here saying that you need to go and spend loads of money creating this oh, for your organization. You can just put it online. Yeah, absolutely. But it's just the way these things have been delivered. I think we can all learn from. Yeah. These days, the less you write, the better. I just interviewed Honest Burgers and they created their handbook on one page. And he told me, he said, it's so short that you can wear it on your sleeves. I'm like, what do you mean by that? And he sent me a picture. So each employee, when they join the company, they get a sweatshirt with half of the handbook down one side and half down the other. And I could picture people getting creative with culture books also. Something that's short, sweet, to the point. You don't need a 30 page, to your point about money. 
You don't have to spend a lot of money on it. Something that is going to bring your culture, bring your values to life. That's the main intent of it. Get people talking, referring to it over and over again. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the last thing we'll talk about on values before we start looking at wrapping up, because I'm conscious of how generous you've been with your time, is leadership, right? So so we, we talked a lot about values. We talked about how to discover them, how to implement them, how to keep them alive in your organization. How do you do this through the lens of leadership, right? Like, And, and, and two concerns there. If there's somebody like you or, or some talented people in the organization in decision-making positions, but not necessarily the CEO, right? How do you get the rest of the leadership team like engaged in these discussions? Yeah, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with managers is that whole awareness. I think it all starts with awareness and they need to understand. It's that whole, why are values valuable? And I always start with that anytime I do a talk, why are they valuable? And if all of a sudden the manager understands that if we don't, if you don't role model these values and you don't make sure that your employees are using these values over and over again, employees are going to making, be making wrong decisions. It's going to make you look bad as a manager. It's going to make the business underperform. So it's really just understanding that. And it goes back to the, I always talk about the what's in it for me. So as a manager, what's in it for me? Well, you're going to look like a superstar if your people are are living the values and, and you're using the values over and over again. And then it's making sure they understand them because so many times what we do with our managers is we just say, here, do it. And we don't necessarily spend the time making sure that they genuinely understand what it means. So we need to take the time doing that as well. No, that makes sense. I think, how do you hold your leadership team accountable to this sort of stuff, right? When you've implemented this and you've got them engaged in the first instance and you, you've come out of the process with a set of values, how do you, how do you hold them accountable? Well, more and more companies are bringing values into performance management. So a good place to start is probably with your leaders. And it's not necessarily to, you know, to give them a hard time and say, you're rubbish at this. It's more, I see it more as a performance development, not performance management. So how can we look at which are the values that come naturally to you? Which are your strengths and helping them understand how to use them? Which are the areas that you might be lacking and then help them build those up? And, you know, have values buddies if you need to, you know, if someone's really bad at collaboration, because it might not be natural for them, how can they have someone who can help role model it to them? Just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're perfect at everything. But first of all, it's understanding your strengths and your opportunities, and then holding them accountable at the end of the day. I know um, I interviewed someone before, and they do that on their performance management process, and they even score people on how they are against their values and put them through learning and development programs based off of that. And I think that that's probably a good place to start. Sure. I like how you said, just because you're leaders, you're not perfect to everything. I think that bears repeating, to be <laughs> honest. There's been so many takeaways there and this has been so, so, so useful. But as I say, I want to be conscious of your time and, and thank you very much for everything you've done today. For everybody listening, couple of giveaways here that I hope you'll find super useful, right? So we love all of Deborah's books. And as, as she said, there's three in the market working on the next one like another eight to come by the sounds of it. <laughs> Bringing out your values, the one we've talked about as I've been kind of talking and I've got in front of me here, uh, genuinely recently found this super useful and we've picked up 25 copies of this. Would love to give them all away to people listening right now. If you'd like a copy, please email podcast at pinpointhq.com with your name and importantly, your full physical mailing address, not just your email address because we will post you a physical copy of the book. So please go ahead and do that. I think for those that want something a bit more meaningful and in-depth, like the book is a fantastic tool, but to take it one step further, and, and again, we've recently picked a copy of this up ourselves, 
Debra has released a new DIY values toolkit that takes this again one step further. It has the, the pack of values, it has a guide for implementing this and a whole bunch of other really useful things in it. And we're giving one copy of this away as well. Uh, and if you're interested in that, please also email podcast.pinpointhq with your name and your full physical mailing address, as well as an indication that you want the values toolkit. And the first person to do so will get that. Everybody else, I couldn't recommend it enough. And if you're interested in picking that up, you can do so on Deborah's website and we'll put a link to that in the notes as well. That just leaves me to say thank you so much, Deborah. It's been really good to talk to you and to, and to learn so much from you today. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. And because I believe that everybody is winners, I wrote a new chapter to my values book during the pandemic that is for free. So even if you don't win a copy of the book, you can get a free copy of 24 stories of how companies live the values during the pandemic, companies like Zoom and such. And they're just absolutely lovely stories. So we'll make sure that that everybody can get that as well. We'll chuck a link to that in the notes as well. But brilliant. Thank you, Deborah. And Thank to you. everybody else, for more great tales from the trenches and best practice guidance, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. We've got great quality content just like this coming every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.